Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hello, this is Chris Safarova. This is our weekly show, Strategy Skills. And today we are talking about how the internet disrupted media industries. We are here with Amanda Lotz. Amanda, so glad to have you here. Oh, thank you. Amanda, a good place to start our discussion will be, how did you get here? What led you to have a passion to study disruption of media industries? What has been your journey that led you here? Could you tell us your story? Sure. So I am a media studies professor. I, I began my career uh, right around the year 2000 in the United States and trained in the United States. And at that point, I was studying television. And it was an odd time to start a career in television because around that time, television began some really significant changes. And so I focused throughout the early 2000s on trying to understand what was happening. From the perspective of the US, what I was seeing is that the kind of shows on television, the dramas and comedies were beginning to be different from the past in some significant ways. And I wanted to understand why. So the first project that I did was looking specifically at how in the late 90s and early 2000s, there emerged shows about women that had never existed before, like in, in number, in variety. So a few titles might be Ally McBeal and Sex and the City. And these were shows that wouldn't have existed in the past because they wouldn't have been perceived to gather a mass audience. And so I was investigating what made those shows possible and came to see how radically the industry was starting to change. At that point, the key drivers of change in the US related to the wide scale uptake of cable and the fact that audiences were no longer just limited to, let's say three channels, but were spreading themselves over hundreds. And that changed the dynamic. And the other thing was that those cable and satellite channels had subscriber income and that enabled different kind of storytelling than those channels that had existed and relied only on advertising. So I continued to follow television through the early 2000s and, and those changes. And all that time, of course, you know, the internet is coming to be used more widely. And there are major stories coming out of other industries. In the early 2000s was a time of uh, really significant change for the music industry. Newspapers then started to be very much disrupted but I kind of stayed on the story about television. By around 2010, we began to see in the US, I think really the streaming of video start to become a viable business. That was that then became the new focus of what I was studying. And in terms of this book, it grew from my feeling around 2018 that I had said as much as I could say about how television has changed. And I've been very focused on the way that subscriber-funded streaming services, so things like Netflix, things that aren't ad-supported, 
I'd been investigating really how their business models were really different than the norms of the video industry before and you know how that made almost everything that we thought we knew about you know how the business worked you know, sort of it, it twisted it and turned it on its head but I I had the sense that the story in other media industries was different I didn't quite know exactly what had happened. And I decided that I wanted to dig into those other stories to begin to see if there was a common story or really what kind of learning we could develop about the implications of disruption, technological disruption on the scale of what internet communication technologies have brought to media industries and many other industries as well. And that instead of trying to start with a grand theory, I, I wanted to see, well, if we if we study each of these particular contexts, what can we learn about those specific industries? And then can that build into, you know, some some bigger takeaways or some guidance that might be helpful more broadly? Amanda, your work shows that much of what we think we know about how the internet disrupted media industries is wrong. Piracy didn't wreck the recording industry. Netflix isn't killing Hollywood movies. And information doesn't want to be free. Could you elaborate on some key misconceptions people have about how the internet disrupted media industries? And could you then share with us, based on your work, what really happened when four major media industries where the ground zero of digital disruption. Sure. So I don't think it's surprising that we have some misconceptions because in reality, we are talking about 20 years of business change. And people of a certain age who you know, were aware of, of life through all those 20 years, if you think back to the early 2000s and just Everyone had the sense that the internet was going to change things. There was a lot of really you know, heady thinking, but we weren't really sure what was going to happen. And it, it is interesting to think back to just how different maybe your day-to-day -day experience of media was at that time. It's, we, we were really much more limited in terms of what we could do. So I say that to begin with, like, I'm not critical of the fact that there are misconceptions. It makes good sense. But what I was hoping to do with the book was, you know, sort of call them out a little bit and try to help us move beyond them. Because I think in some cases, the way in which they continue to structure our thinking and our expectations limits us from actually finding the answers that we need to deal with the disruption for those industries that are still facing some, some pretty significant turmoil. And so one of those, I'd say, misconceptions, I think, is the notion that there is a single tech industry. And we see that you know, sort of in the language a lot of how uh, journalism talks about this space. You know, and, and I think it again comes from the fact that through the early 20th century or 21st century, we had all these new companies. At least we had the sense that they were you know, using the internet in some way. But in reality, what those companies were new competitors in a variety of different industries. So yes, you have both Spotify and Uber, and we might, you know, they generally get lumped together as in the tech industry, but their implications are for entirely separate sectors. And the way that they were using the new internet communication technology tools that were available were also quite different. And so you know, I think that mass frame of 
the tech industry as just one thing prevents us from understanding what actually happened in different industries and to different companies and why in the way that is productive to coming up with solutions, plans, approaches as you know, next generation you know, technological disruption approaches. So that's just sort of at, at the most macro level, right? You need to get beyond just thinking about the tech industry. For media industries, one of the related problems there was that initially, or anything using the internet was sort of framed perhaps as a separate industry. So for example, in the early 2000s, as blogs emerged, there was this idea that they were new media. And similarly, anything that was new was being described as a separate, distinct new media space. And one of the really important points in sorting out what had happened to the media industry is understanding that actually no new media has actually been created. What happened is that internet communication technologies provided a new way of distributing media. So historically, if we go way back, newspapers were distributed on rags <laughs> and that led the industry to operate a certain way. Yes. Um, then came paper and that led the industry to operate a certain way. And here we are now with another change in distribution technology. There are now, the internet provides new ways to distribute words uh, and pictures. And one of the things that's really been profound for media industries is the extent to which internet communication technologies are able to do different things than those previous analog distribution technologies. And that's really what's been so disruptive to them. You know, the blogs are not fundamentally all that different from newspapers, but the internet allows you to publish a story you know, widely within seconds, right? Whereas that old newspaper business, because you were distributing on a physical piece of paper, you needed to wait until you had enough content to warrant writing, you know, of publishing a full paper, going through all of the work of putting it on the paper, of taking the paper and taking it out to people, right? So for the newspaper industry, you know, one of the key ways in which it was disrupted wasn't necessarily just this idea that there are, you know, people can have blogs, but it, it changed the temporality, the, the time availability of news. And of course, it, it also created you know, differences in who could create it as well. And so if we go through industry by industry, we can identify the way in which Internet communication technologies made the experience of media different and in many cases better from a consumer perspective. And it is those capabilities that distributing media using digital technologies has really been at the core of the disruption. The internet disrupted the record industry by offering listeners more flexibility in how they consume music. It first broke singles out of albums and then shifted the primary revenue stream to an offering where consumers can pay to access music instead of owning it. What developments are you anticipating next in the music industry? Yes, the music industry, in some ways, despite the fact that it experienced change first and, you know, I think in the early 2000s, it almost felt as though the industry could entirely collapse. And, and now we see it is oddly not dissimilar from its previous condition. 
I think there is still more change to go. And I think that might be tied to the relationships within the industry. And so in many ways, the labels, the companies that recruit artists that help support the costs of uh, recording music and then uh, in a managed distribution historically, uh, you know, the labels are largely intact. They still perform that role. I think the question that remains is, is the industry well-balanced between the role of the artists and the role of the labels and the balance of the income, let's say. I finished this book just before COVID and <laughs> sort of had a, a brief moment of panic, but since it's really you know, about a period from 2000 to 2020, it, it wasn't really radically changed. But I think of the different industry sectors, music is a really interesting one to sort of see how different entities are affected in different ways. And so while the record labels haven't been radically affected by COVID because of, of the nature of their business, the artists who historically have earned most of their income from live performances, they have been greatly affected. And so yeah, I've been watching to sort of see how perhaps the dynamics of how artists are paid, and who gets paid, may begin to adapt because in truth, the industry can't exist without artists. For the most part, you know, recording albums, in terms of the artist's life, a lot of that was you know, to feed and encourage that live performance circuit and, and having that money go away has been you know, really devastating in that space. The other part that I think remains to be seen is the relationship between the streaming services and the labels. And so I'm sort of saying two different things because on one hand, you know, the labels were you know, at the center of the industry before and they're still pretty much intact and that's kind of surprising. On the other hand, the primary source of revenue for the industry has entirely changed. And you know, I don't know how many industries that has occurred and that's a pretty significant transformation. Yeah. The labels used to be supported by selling things directly to consumers. And now the labels primary income is coming from licensing the music to the streaming services. So the streaming services play a, a very important role in providing the experience that users have come to adopt and appreciate. The streaming services know so much more about how individuals, I mean, maybe not by name, but you know, by account, how they consume media or how they consume music, you know, their patterns of listening, how much they listen to any one track. Um, that's an enormous amount of personalized information that never really existed. Now, if you think about it, the labels certainly, they could count record sales, but they never knew what happened after those records were sold. They didn't know if you played the same song 25 times in an hour. And so I would expect that the practices of the industry would develop and change as a result of some of the things that I suspect the streaming services are learning about music listening in general. I mean, certainly they've expanded into to podcasts and many audio forums. So that level of information about listener tastes, listener behavior, and I think we could imagine it to feed back on the creation of music and spoken word like podcasts in all sorts of ways over the next few years. When it comes to ride-sharing industry, which is another interesting industry you did some important work on, 
The internet introduced communication and data sharing ability. Previously, taxis were roaming the streets looking for passengers or waited for a dispatcher to tell them where they should pick up a passenger. Passengers had much less control over cost, over availability for a car to come pick them up. And now Lyft and Uber have a network of drivers that could more easily find and communicate with passengers, calculate cost and travel time and make payments and payments became much more convenient for the user. What do you think will be the likely next disruption or next development for the ride sharing industry? Oh, that's, <laughs> that's it's somewhat beyond my magic ball. To a large degree, what I'm doing in the book and talking about Uber and ride sharing is trying to set up the illustration of how you know, multiple companies that we may think of as tech companies are actually doing some pretty different things. I like to actually look at the transportation industry more generally because it is multifaceted in a way in which I think that is helpful to lead us to think about some of the media industries in different ways. So for example, you know, you know what's the next big disruption? Well, it's hard to say. Other things that have happened in recent years have been, depending on what city you are in, in the world, I think the appearance of electric scooters and some of the startup companies around both electric scooters and bikes, we never have the sense that when a new kind of transportation technology arrives, that it's going to kill off all the others in the way that it seems, I'm going to focus on video space here, that our primary frame for understanding the video space is in terms of wars and like often, you know, will Disney plus kill Netflix? Um, and instead of recognizing the extent to which there's an enormous amount of complementarity. So certainly companies like Uber, they disrupted the industry in terms of the characteristics that they had that were like taxis. But at the same time, we continued to have, let's say, public transportation infrastructures that were unchanged. You have individuals living in different cities and they're making decisions about do, you know, can they afford a car? Do they need a car? Uh, are they a big family and they need two cars? And those decisions are all based on you know, what they particularly need and what they can pay for. And so they may have two cars, they may cobble together their transportation needs with public transportation and a car and some Ubers occasionally. Maybe an electric scooter becomes something that can prevent them from needing a second car. So the point is that we see how there can be significant complementarity and not just simple substitution. And I would say the same thing actually helps us see what's happening in streaming video, rather than the idea that only one streaming service can exist, or that if we have streaming services, it's going to kill off linear television and we're not going to have TV channels anymore. I think that too is a, is a pretty not effective frame for understanding what's happening. Instead, recognizing that different kinds of video services are doing different things and that people subscribe to them and use them for different reasons. Again, it comes back probably quite a bit to how much disposable income they have, how many of these services can they afford, as well as what are their different needs. So a service such as Netflix or Disney Plus for that matter, are almost entirely scripted fictional content. So television shows and movies as we've historically understood them. 
that's not the only thing that people watch on television. A lot of what people watch on television is daily news, things like breakfast shows, whatever's playing on in the morning as you're getting ready, and sports. And those are things that we haven't seen streaming services come in and really offer good alternatives, some in the sports space, but it's still pretty limited. So I think you know, if we can see the different parallels between transportation and streaming video and begin to understand how video is now a space where we have different business models. Some things are being paid for by advertising, others just by subscription. In some countries, you also have um, public funds supporting the creation of content. And people want different things. Some people want to see American movies. Some people want to see content from their country. And the truth is that most of the U.S. streaming services are not providing very much content from outside of the U.S. Netflix, perhaps, is certainly circulating more content globally than the other U.S. services, but it's still not creating a lot of local content for really anyone outside of the U.S., so just to pull that all together, I think one of the key changes that we see in the video industry is that we have many more options and services than has been the case in the past. And the question I'm often asked when I talk to journalists is, uh, how many of these services are people going to pay for? And I don't think we should assume that there is a single or simple answer. But we also shouldn't assume that we used to live in a world of channels and now we're going to live in a world just of streaming services, but that over time, the businesses based on providing video using different technologies will sort out you know, what kind of content is most affordable, uh, what they can earn a return on, and we'll probably see greater differentiation in the marketplace than we do right now. So that maybe channels become the space really just for live events or, or things that are sort of marked in time and that streaming becomes increasingly the space for scripted forms of all kinds. In your recent book, you mentioned a key mistake in how we have understood the disruption faced by media industries has been to focus only on the internet as the source of the disruption. You referred to the work of Harvard professor Bharat Anand, where he argues that analysts often make a mistake in focusing their energy on exploring the cause of disruption and finding errors in how it was initially handled. Instead, he advises to focus on identifying the underlying conditions that led to change to be so swift and extensive. He uses a metaphor of a wildfire and that instead of trying to understand if fire was caused by something like a tossed cigarette, what is important is to identify the kindling that leads the fire to spread. For example, in the music industry, the high price at which CDs were sold, along with other things such as albums were sold instead of singles, provided considerable kindling. And every industry substantially disrupted by the internet had kindling. Could you please expand on this? Yes, it's such a great metaphor. And the, the notion of kindling, it comes from Anand's book called The Content Trap. So I think it's particularly helpful when you're trying to think of that broader 
questions about how does one prepare for technological disruption in a way, right? You're imagining the thing that doesn't exist. And so the recording industry is a good place to start because I can't imagine that recording executives weren't aware that, that people really wanted to buy singles as opposed to albums. And I think another part of the kindling there in the recorded music industry that we have to consider is the price of music, because immediately the big change in that industry that happened just before file sharing was the transition from records and cassettes to CDs. And the industry took the opportunity of the CD to increase the price for an album as a unit, often as much as 50% more, even though the cost of the industry were being decreased because they were easier to manufacture and distribute. And so that really created a situation where music listeners en masse weren't real happy with the situation. It's not clear, or actually I'd say, given what has happened in the last 20 years, I think it is clear that most people didn't want to buy music. They didn't want to own it. What they wanted was access to it. And so the technological conditions before the internet allowed the recording industry to force a certain experience onto users. Well, if you want your music, uh, we'll give you CDs, they will be this price, and you will buy all 12 songs, even though you really just want to play one. And that, you know, I think that was an enormous amount of kindling. So that when a technology came along that enabled file sharing, I really don't even suspect that the piracy moment in which the content was free was even the important part. The important part was the ability to have more control over your music experience. And that's what the ability to buy digital files ultimately brought. But then also, you know, what the streaming music streaming services have offered is a range of experiences, right? So you can create your own playlist. You can still listen to all kinds of other playlists. You can have many different experiences compared to what was the case in an analog era when you were pretty much limited to owning music or listening to radio. So that's a really good illustration of how kindling works. And I think the lessons to take from kindling for an industry is you know, to be aware of the ways in which you know, industrial conditions at the time may allow you to force an experience on consumers that isn't optimal for them, though it might lead to a really good business, but to make sure that you have a plan for what happens if those conditions change. And another industry to look at, which is interesting to compare, is the movie industry. And say in the book that actually the film industry, in terms of the notion of you know, going to theater and things like that, that space has probably been the least disrupted of the four. And one of the reasons that is, is because that industry was significantly disrupted about 40 years ago, uh, when the arrival of video cassette recorders created the video cassette rental business, and then DVDs created the direct sell-through. So again, it's a bit of a history lesson, but you know, thinking back to what really wasn't that long ago, in the late 70s, you know, into the early 80s, the only way you could watch a movie would be to go to cinema, or if a television channel happened to be playing the movie you wanted to watch. And so again, that experience for consumers was very limited. 
And to a large degree, the film industry thought that was a source of power, that their ability to limit the availability, sort of to create artificial scarcity, that was a way that they could create price discrimination. And that was actually quite valuable to them. And you can see how important that was when we look at the way that the Hollywood studios fought the video cassette recorder. There was a case that went all the way to the Supreme Court that they were trying to prevent people from being able to use video cassette recorders to record movies in home for personal use. And they lost that case. And what's fascinating about that history is that that was the best thing that arguably happened, at least to the to US industry, because video and a DVD sale became an enormous source of revenue for them through the 1980s and 1990s. And we don't see cinema going, dropping off a cliff. People still continue to go to the movies. In fact, I think it's 2001 was both the high point in movie going in North America, as well as a high point in sale or rental of physical either tapes or DVDs. And it's really curious that given that that experience is not that long ago, that it it hasn't really played into how the industries have strategized incorporating streaming. I think it's easy to assume that the current dynamics are the best ones for the industry, but what the story of the film industry really tells us that people wanted to watch movies a lot more than they could. I want to watch a movie more often than I can possibly get myself to a cinema. And so these technologies, these distribution technologies like video cassette and DVD that enabled the industry to serve that desire, people wanting to have a movie experience more frequently, actually served them quite well. But here we are a couple more decades later with yet another technology that is capable of making movie watching even more accessible. And it really has been a difficult process in, at least in the U.S., to figure out sort of been a struggle because there are two industries within the film industry that have sort of a different stake in this, right? The studios that produce the movies, they recognize that there's all kinds of opportunities in streaming. But what has led to the stalemate is that the theater owners are in a different business and they're owned by a different set of entities and they have been very concerned to lose their status in the system as the place where films go first and have basically threatened the studios before COVID that if you do take your film straight to streaming services that we won't play your films at all. And so I think that is definitely going to be a very fascinating space to watch in what are hopefully the coming months in which COVID less defines our experience worldwide. And we begin to see perhaps a new balance between studios and cinemas in making movies available both in cinema, because there are many titles that people want to go see in theaters and that work well in that case, but that there are also other films that frankly, the studios have not been making as many of in in recent decades, simply because they aren't as geared toward the conditions of cinema going. So I think the idea that there are multiple ways for content to be made available to consumers is is a win all the way around. And it's just been, 
well, we'll, we'll find out how uh, COVID plays in, in disrupting that story. Amanda, you earlier mentioned that there was the widespread misunderstanding of the nature of disruption, the expectation of new media rather than a new form of distributing media, which is responsible for the slow pace at which strategies and solutions for media were developed. Could you please expand on this? And what would be your advice on how our listeners could use this as a teaching moment to make better decisions for the organizations? Right. I think the key is to really step back and examine what is happening. Right. And part of why I could write this book now is that we have distance from disruption that we didn't have in the early 2000s. Right. So it felt odd that people were talking about new media in the early 2000s. And I tried to imagine what that was. You know, it wasn't clear. And I think the key was as that transition developed, really trying to think about what was happening. So for example, I think back to roughly 2007 when Netflix started streaming. And that was a moment in time in which many, many analyst reports and publications ran headlines like, it's the end of television. And it's easy to get caught up in those kind of big hyperbolic claims. But I just remember thinking, the shows that are on Netflix in 2007, like these are all quote unquote television shows. These were shows that were made for television networks. How is this the end of television? I don't understand. In these moments of change, we often conflate things that don't quite fit together. And so if you ask yourself the question, let's say as a television executive, why would people want to have Netflix instead of watching TV shows on my channel? You might realize that, well, Netflix is letting people watch whenever they want. And Netflix is letting them watch, you know, episode after episode, you know, not necessarily you know, the norm is certainly not that anyone sits and watches 10 hours a day, but the idea that if you're watching a television drama and that you can only watch an hour of it once a week, of course, it seemed natural to us once because it was how we become acculturated, but there's nothing natural about it. And so the idea that the experience of being able to watch episode after episode, if that's what you wanted to do, that's an improvement. You know, recognizing that, yes, people were having to pay for this, but they didn't have to sit through commercials. And you know, if, if at that point you're watching the growth in subscribers, you know, I think that also is an indication, well, people want a different kind of experience. Maybe not all people but that there is at least a market of some people who would prefer to have an experience of based on choice of, of being advertiser free and sort of recognizing, well, what are the implications of that going to be for my business? And so that pattern of thinking of sort of pulling down this new technology and sorting out what it was doing exactly relative to what were the norms in the industry you recognize then that it's actually not new media. Competition is not hopeless. It's rather recognizing the affordances or the capabilities that the new thing has that your enterprise doesn't have. And so then the question becomes, well, what can you do about it? 
And so I think what happened among the channel owners in the U.S., certainly that they probably began developing the streaming services that only came to market recently much earlier. And so, of course, they were trying to push off the massive change to their businesses, businesses that were working really well as long as possible. But they recognized, I think Disney is the example I would point to there, the pace at which Disney announced Disney Plus and launched it as a really solid and not particularly problematic platform suggests that that had been in development for quite some time. So they weren't, of course, coming out and you know, announcing it and trying to erode their current business. But I think as a company, they did understand the features that made streaming attractive. And instead of sort of trying to kill off companies that were providing streaming services or to view them as, you know, um, there's no way we can compete with that. Uh, we see an adaptation in the business and of course, not necessarily an end to the existing business. And so I think those pivots, they don't mean to make it sound simple because it certainly isn't, but for the incumbent businesses to understand that there is a place for them in the environment of streaming services is leads to different mitigation strategies than just sort of assuming that if it's new media, we're old media and we can't compete. There's no way forward in that, but there's certainly, we see at least it's in the media scape, there were all kinds of ways to incorporate the opportunities of internet communication technologies within existing companies. Building on talking about how some players did a great job or a relatively good job at adapting and some didn't, recorded music was the first media industry that was substantially challenged by the internet disruption. And what happened with the recorded music has been influential on the choices made by the other industries that have followed. Could you elaborate more on how other industries used what happened with the recorded music industry to guide their decision-making and how they could have done it better? It's interesting because it's well-known, I think, among some circles that the idea that piracy killed the music and nearly killed the music industry is pretty overblown. At least the folks that study music figured out a while ago that that's not exactly what happened at all. But what was interesting to me as back when I was still just studying television was just how strongly that idea had imprinted on many of the executives in video-based industries. And so because of you know, questions of bandwidth and internet speeds, all of these media industries did not experience digital disruption at the same time. Music and print went first, and really the video-based industries had another decade to sort of get themselves sorted. But really, I think one of the guiding lessons that the video executives took was we have to protect ourselves against piracy and the perception that that the key really was holding on to your content and i think that's why it's important to go back and to look at these myths that persist and to pull them apart because as long as they continue to frame our thinking we can't see the opportunities that actually exist so again the period of roughly 2005 2010 that was a period of time in which that fear of piracy had a pretty strong hold on the video industries. And it really did prevent innovation and it prevented moving more aggressively to making content available online. And it's interesting. I feel like 
as a conversation in the culture, piracy has, at least in certain countries, you know, at least in the U.S., and I'm now based in Australia, you don't see as much conversation about piracy as a threat. The nature that the conversation has shifted somewhat more toward sharing passwords as sort of an alternative form of unauthorized access, or I see the conversation, you know, developing from time to time around like, oh, you know, I will access that content illegally because I don't want to get another subscription. And I think, you know, that it hides actually the way that the broader dynamics have changed. And I think a lot of the guiding logic of piracy was based on industries that in an analog era couldn't meet the desires of consumers and how they wanted to consume product. And the digital era has allowed that much more. And I think the takeaway that I would derive was that those who said that a lot of the unauthorized behavior was a result of it just being too difficult to access, I think there's a good bit of evidence for that, that indeed people have not resorted to unauthorized access largely because the value proposition being offered by services is reasonable. What has happened is that there's much more choice in the marketplace. For example, in the U.S., the extent to which the dynamic of cable or satellite service, it created so much discontent in the marketplace because the cost for cable service was so high and it was all or nothing. Either you were limited to your broadcast channels or you had to pay at least $100 a month for a giant bundle of channels that you really didn't want, at least in its entirety. And I think it's those kind of conditions where you have marketplaces where consumers can't take any legitimate action. And that helps explain why the plurality of services that we're seeing now helps address the different price points, as well as the different kinds of video experiences that individual consumers want to have. So I think there's much more choice that has been a significant improvement for consumers. To continue our discussion about how labels handled the disruption, technological innovation created a window to reconstruct the music supply chain. Music retailers were by far the most disrupted component of the music industry. Labels could have taken a bigger role in retailing when this disruption occurred, but instead new companies took this opportunity. Apple, of course, comes to mind here when they offered a tolerable deal, selling songs for 99 cents and returning 70% of it to labels, which is, of course, much better than the 0% labels were getting from pirated songs. Apple also offered this deal at the right time and they were the right partner. What do you think we can learn from this lost opportunity, significant opportunity? And how can our listeners apply these lessons in their organizations, even outside of media space? Yes, I think it's an important lesson for businesses to note, it should give them some confidence in doing what is a hard thing, which is recognizing that often when technological disruption comes along, that you do have to change your business and that there is an advantage to doing it sooner 
and more on your terms than later. And so there were many, many attempted streaming services before the ones that are in the marketplace now. And I think another analysis of exactly why those efforts failed would bring even more information about you know, a good strategy. But often, at least in the case of the services that the record labels offer, their efforts didn't go far enough. They attempted to hold on to the existing dynamics too greatly rather than recognizing and really leaning into the way that internet communication technologies could help them serve music listeners better. And so I think, don't mean to in any way suggest that this is easy, but recognizing that as disruption happens, that there are advantages to moving earlier and that there are advantages into reconfiguring the business so that it is more optimal, most optimal for your consumer, rather than trying to just maintain as much of the business as it has been. I think what we see across the media industries are that the winners are the companies that try to improve on what they're offering consumers and the companies that have had the roughest time are those that have tried to really fight against adapting to help consumers use technologies to have an improved experience. YouTube is really considered important to the disruption of the music industry, but it played a major role before the emergence of streaming services. Could you tell us more about the role they played and what do you think will be YouTube's role going forward? So YouTube is a really interesting company in all this because most people probably would not categorize it as related much at all to the music industry. And arguably, that's probably why the music industry sort of left it alone. But it really is an important uh, maybe bridge in this history. And you know, I think in some countries, it continues to play a very significant role where streaming services haven't been adopted quite as widely. But YouTube made music accessible before streaming services came and made music accessible. So it was a way for listeners to find certain songs and be able to listen to them on demand. And there's certainly limits to that experience, which is why I think a lot of the market has moved on to streaming services. But again, I think it illustrates the opportunities that exist for those that prioritize using a new technology to do their job better. Harvard business scholar Clayton Christensen is very well known for his theory of disruptive innovation, but he's less well known for his theory of jobs to be done. And that theory actually explains a lot of the success of media companies that survive disruption. And the theory of jobs to be done is simply this idea that companies should consider what it is that they do for consumers and embrace technology to try to do it better. And so if we look at companies like Netflix and Spotify that I think many would point to as really the success stories in a lot of this transition, and what they did was recognize the way in which digital technologies could be used to make listening to music or watching video a better experience. And they designed their companies to maximize that, 
even though that was you know, contrary to the way that the companies that had been offering music and video had operated in the past. So I think that idea of figuring out how to help consumers and embracing technology, it's often a very difficult thing for companies to do. But if you're going to take a lesson from what has happened in, in this industry, it is consistently the story that explains both success, I think, and, and failure across the industries. Thank you, Amanda. Can you please share with us where listeners can learn more about your work, about your book? And what are the key takeaways you would like our listeners to walk away with after listening to this episode? Well, thank you very much for having me on and giving me a chance to talk about the ideas. It's always fun to have conversations and not just write words on a page. I tweet about media industries at Dr. TV Lots. That's D-R-T-V-L-O-T-Z. My personal webpage is amandalots.com and you can find links there to books, articles, uh, other videos, uh, appearances. Uh, so there's lots of information there. I believe the book is available in most of the usual online retailers and uh, working its way into physical bookstores around the world right now as well. As far as takeaways, I really think one of the important lessons here is to tend your kindling. There's not a lot that, let's say, anyone can do in order to prevent technology from coming in and disrupting the dynamics of your business as it currently exists. But in those moments in which new technology you know, begins approaching, it's often not very fast. It develops over time. And I think we're kind of in a similar position maybe right now, thinking in terms of media, in terms of virtual reality, augmented reality, right? There's a lot that seems similar to the way new media was being talked about 20 years ago, that there are these technologies that allow us to do different things, but, and it's going to be really cool, um, but we don't really know how. And so thinking about how these new technologies might help change your business and then how they could be incorporated to improve what you offer your customers, I think would be the approach that I would most recommend, at least based on having a look at what has happened in the media industries. And we will make sure to include the link to the book in the show notes as well. Thank you very much for having me and for this fantastic conversation. Thank you everyone for tuning in and Amanda, thank you very much for being here. It was my pleasure. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.